It's a gradual abolition. It occurs in stages. This is to appease the pro-slavery lobby in New York. And by 1827, it is supposed to be at least entirely formally abolished. Of course, exceptions have been found where some people continued to live in bondage even after that date. But overwhelmingly, New York State, black people were emancipated before or at that date. So that's really our go-to date. And that is why in 1821, the New York State Constitutional Convention creates this voter restriction for black voters to inhibit their influence at the polls at the time when all black people are emancipated and then possibly eligible for the franchise. The pro-slavery lobby wants to curb this and hobble this at the outset. So they say some years before, well, even when you're emancipated, we're going to make it as tough as possible for you to exercise the vote and become full citizens because that's how much we dread your input at the polls. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Amy Godine to the program, who's well-known for writing about the Adirondacks. Uh, Amy, thanks very much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. You have a new book out about some unusual happenings having to do with abolition, uh, abolition of slavery in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. But um, I was sort of mildly aware of this, but uh, the Adirondacks was really a center for abolition because it was the place where, among other things, uh, John Brown lived. Tell us a little bit about John Brown. Who who was he and why is he important? Well, John Brown is um, famously known for what he did at Harper's Ferry when he took a band of um, anti-slavery zealots and attempted to liberate the fort there. This is a federal arm armory and take weaponry to wage war on the slave power in Virginia. It failed very quickly. He was uh, immediately besieged by um, troops that came and local groups as well that um, sought to stop this, and they did. But he found his great celebrity for that effort and was hanged mm -hmm. for it, which made him more famous still as a symbol of anti-slavery. And also, wasn't the soldier who led the party that uh, quelled the uprising was Robert E. Lee, wasn't it? That's what I've read. I think that's right. Um, there were a number of famous people in that party, but Lee is foremost, the best known. Mm -hmm. Now, but your latest, your newest book, and, and tell us the name and, and so forth, is about. Well, um, go ahead. The name of the book is "The Blackwoods Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier," and Brown is a figure in the book. He's not the star but he plays an important role all the same. Who is the star of the book? You know, one of the things I wanted to do when I wrote this book was put the black settlers in the Adirondacks who John Brown came to the region to help at the center of the story. He'd always been at the center of um, historical accounts of this chapter in Adirondack history, and I I sought to shift that and, and recenter the experience of the black grantees. They got their land in the Adirondacks from a renowned New York State upstate abolitionist named Garrett Smith, who devised what he called a plan of justice and benevolence, a scheme of justice and benevolence that would help black men in New York State gain the right to vote 
um, in New York, you couldn't vote if you were black and male if you did not, if you could not prove you owned $250 in property. You needed that much to claim the ballot, and that was well beyond the means of almost all black New Yorkers from 1821 to 1870. That's how long that voter restriction ruling stood. And Garrett Smith came up with an idea to give land to black New Yorkers to help them get on their own farms, get out of the cities, improve their lands, build farms, build property, and gain access to the road, to the vote. That was the idea. Did it work out? I gather maybe it didn't. Or, or what, well, did it work out? Well, in terms of his expectations, it was a great failure. He gave away 120,000 acres of Adirondack land, mostly Adirondack, to 3,000 black New Yorkers, mostly from cities and large towns in New York State. And of that 3,000, maybe 50 grantees possessed their land and brought with them about 200 people. That's a pretty paltry showing out of 3,000. So by Garrett Smith's lights, it was a failure. But I take a slightly different tack in my view in my book. What is your different tack? Well, I put more emphasis on the grantee settlers who stayed and how they made out on this frontier and what their gains were in this new world that they could not have achieved if they'd stayed in the towns or cities they came from, where um, Jim Crow ruled so strongly um, and restrictions for black lives were so arduous and um, widespread. And on the frontier, they achieved a much greater um, a much greater parity with their neighbors. They were able to gain town appointments. They sent their kids to integrated schools. They all went to integrated churches. They served on integrated work crews and mm. um, lived in small, largely integrated rural enclaves, or rather hamlets, and they settled themselves small enclaves they gave names to, like Freeman's Home, Timbuktu, Blacksville, signaling the origins of this um, black effort, but these were always integrated worlds, overwhelmingly. All of this was sort of unthinkable uh, in the worlds they left behind them and a great gain over what they left behind, in my in my opinion. Stumbling block that I see, or that would, would occur to me about this uh, system or idea, was th- these probably weren't folks who were farmers to begin with, were they? I no, mean- they weren't. You're right. That was a big problem. They needed help on the frontier. They needed more um, mentoring and guidance than they got from, well, the man who was supposed to help them was delayed by business problems. He couldn't help, and that was John Brown. So he was late coming to their help. This all happened in 1846 to 1853. So um, Brown goes to Garrett Smith in 1848 and declares his hope of moving to this frontier to help them. Garrett Smith is delighted because Brown is experienced with farming and can help them and is a dedicated abolitionist to boot. So he's in their corner, politically speaking, but he is delayed and that is problematic for the grantees. And they don't have local people on the ground. They know they can turn to for reliable guidance and support. And that's a liability as well. Um, Also, 
whether you're experienced in farming or not, the Adirondack frontier where um, Smith gives away land is rough country for farming in the best of circumstances, which Smith acknowledges later on. We do a little uh, kind of silly quiz as part of our historians podcast we call the History Mystery. And uh, uh-huh. this is sort of a special edition of of historians podcast uh-huh. uh, because it's being you know done kind of completely extemporaneously. But I was going to make the history mystery, and I hope I haven't, I won't um, do something that you're not really up on. But um, <laughs> I was going to ask the question: Well, when did New York State ban slavery? And apparently, and I don't have the date in front of me, and I hope you do. It was mm-hmm. a, a date in the, what, 1840s? No, uh, slavery is abolished in New York completely in 1827. That's when it's really legalized, and that's that's Eight, the date. Yeah, 1827. Oh, so I was going to make it the question, well, when did they abolish slavery in New York State? And the answer is mm-hmm. 1827. And that's to give right. these sort of multiple choices, was it in 1776? No, that's not so, right? Uh-huh. No. <laughs> when the Declaration of Independence is passed, and was it's it right after? Gradual, it's a gradual abolition. It occurs in stages. Um, this is to appease the pro-slavery lobby in New York. And um, by 1827, it is supposed to be at least entirely formally abolished. Of course, exceptions have been found where some people continued to live in bondage even after that date. But overwhelmingly... New York State, black people were emancipated before or at that date. So that's really our go-to date. And that is why in 1821, the New York State um, Constitutional Convention creates this voter restriction for black voters to inhibit their influence at the polls at the time when all black people are emancipated and then possibly eligible for the franchise. And uh, the pro-slavery lobby wants to curb this and hobble this at the outset. So they say some years before, well, even when you're emancipated, we're going to make it as tough as possible for you to exercise the vote and become full citizens because that's how much we dread your input at the polls. That's what I was hoping that you'd get at, that yes, Uh there were these efforts to appease the slave owners who existed in New York State, and we've become more aware of that in recent years, dare I say, partly because of your reporting on it uh, and you and others? Well, I think I've done, I've not done very much. I can't take credit for research into slave owning and slave ownership in the Adirondack region. There wasn't much of it, and that precedes my story. Most Adirondackers were not enthusiastic slave owners. Slave owning is very rare in the region Gee, I don't think anybody owned a slave in the part of Franklin County or Essex County where Garrett Smith was giving up land. Um, and that's one reason he wanted his grantees to move to this area. There wasn't a legacy of enslavement that people held in their minds as the way it ought to be or the good old days. It wasn't like the Hudson River Valley, which had that strong heritage that that was a problem for emancipated black New Yorkers in that region. They had to contend with a strong memory of slavery as Mm -hmm. the norm. But as you say, in other parts of the state, you mentioned the Hudson Valley and 
yeah. even uh, the Mohawk Valley, which is actually where uh-huh. I'm from, uh, uh-huh. the most famous settler there was Sir William Johnson. That's he right. owned slaves. And quite a few this slaves. Big, mm-hmm. Yes, quite a few. And there's uh, been a big to-do about uh, the uh, General Schuyler, who mm-hmm. owned uh, slaves, and his statue is one of those that's been taken down in Albany because of uh, the controversy that, that developed over statues of uh, famous men of the past who, you know, were famous for other reasons, but were also slave owners. Yes, that's right. I don't see that happening in the Adirondacks. I can't think of a figure who fits that bill. But, you know, there are towns named for slave owners. There is a high peak named for a renowned white supremacist. Um uh, it's it's a very pervasive history. It doesn't restrict itself to one region, and um, depends how far you want to go with recognizing it and and routing it, I suppose. But that's not a struggle I take on in my book. Tell us about the the new book. I don't know if we've actually even mentioned the title. It's called The Black Woods. It's called Pursuing Racial Justice. Yeah. That's okay. I'll say it again. Um, and it's it's um. It's a labor of love. It took a long time to report it because there was so much more to the story than I envisioned when I started writing about it. I thought I'd get a 50-page pamphlet out of this, and it turned into a a, a pretty well-documented tome. So I'm happy with what I turned up. Uh, there's a great deal more to find and discuss than I expected about the actual settlers, how they got along with their white neighbors, um, how we could document instances of interracial collaboration and support and goodwill on the frontier. I don't mean to say it was a utopia or all roses. There was lots of evidence as well of um, <clears throat> sketchy dealings with the grantees of exploitation of their poverty, of overcharging them for 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 groceries and foodstuffs at the local store and and bad guides taking them to subpar plots and saying, better sell this to me now or you're going to be wasting your time here. Things like that crop up in the record. But I found another side of the story, too, which I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting, which is a more hopeful side, I think, describing what better relations. Are the uh, black settlers that, that came to the Adirondacks in that way still with us? I mean, are there still black uh, people or more than you might expect living in the Adirondacks? Um, There's certainly more than one might expect, but not as a result of Gerrit Smith's um, experiment. I think people have moved to the region in this century for other reasons having to do with opportunities and employment, um, education, um, military um, work in the north, um, and that has um, stepped up somewhat the population, but it is overwhelmingly a white region. And one reason I think my book is hopeful is that it it suggests to black visitors to the Adirondack Park a stake for them in the regional history, a place for them in the history that's quite thrilling and that um, makes it clear that the Adirondacks was, and early on, a, a complicated, racially rich, um, multiracial country that did not exclude black people, that welcomed them in this one instance very um, 
clearly to the communities where they moved and, and in some cases really succeeded. One of the best parts of the book is the story of a self-emancipated slave who comes up to Troy from Maryland and gets a grant of land from Garrett Smith in the Adirondacks, sees it, it's terrible, he decides to buy a better land for himself, but stays in the Adirondacks and becomes quite a prospering and well-regarded farmer on the frontier and writes Garrett Smith a beautiful letter thanking him for this munificent gift and um, reporting on his own successes and how well this has worked out for him. Recently, a brook in the Adirondacks that had a um, an ugly racist name for a hundred years was renamed in this man's honor, John Thomas Brook. And that that ceremony brought out about 150 people, which tells us something about how things have changed in the Adirondacks and how much people are welcoming this story. His name was John Thomas Book, is that? No, no, John Thomas, and his, and the Brook is called John Thomas Brook. Let me circle back, if you comment phrase these days, to John Brown. What did he want from Garrett Smith's settlers, if you will? He had two goals, I think. Um, he came, first of all, to help them on their farm, and he did. When he was there, he helped them survey their land. So Several of them felt they had been misused and misled by a white surveyor in the neighborhood who had improperly gauged their land lots, and they asked Brown, who was an experienced surveyor, to redo these surveys. And he did. He was glad he did, because he thought the other fellow was a crook. And Brown's daughter would later report that he had hoped, too, to find among the settlers in this area, which I'm sure he thought would be much more numerous than they were, um, hopeful recruits or helpers for his efforts fighting slavery when he did build his band and head to the West and the South to do battle with the um, slaveocracy on its own ground. He did not get any black people from the Adirondacks to join his mission. He did get one white family to sign on enforced neighbors of his, but no other of his white neighbors joined him. And they, the, I can't speak for the white settlers. I didn't research their reasons. But the black settlers he was particularly hoping would join him declined because they were very invested in this new farming life they'd picked for themselves and had laboriously built up, and they were disinclined to give this up this hard-won gain for this very risky gamble that he was suggesting in the West or in the South, in Virginia and Kansas and Missouri. So he didn't get their support for that. Do you live in the Adirondacks? I live in Saratoga Springs, um, and I've been writing about Adirondack ethnic and social and black history for OG since um, 1989 or so, 88, mostly for Adirondack Life magazine. Also, you, you write for the New York Almanac? I've written for it occasionally, but um, occasionally? I've written okay. for a host of things, also scholarly magazines and, and other regional <clears throat> magazines, and have curated several exhibits on ethnic history and black history in the region as well. The book that you have out now, Black Woods, uh, it's published by Cornell Press, right? That's right, uh-huh. 
and they've uh, been a very good publisher to me and very helpful through this process. So it's been a great alliance, I'm happy to say. How did you, um, maybe you've said this, but how did you develop this interest in um, blacks in the woods, the Adirondack woods, and other maybe ethnic groups in the Adirondacks that we don't think of in terms of the Adirondacks? Well, honestly, my interest started when I moved to the region and I was interested in freelancing for a magazine in the region. The only act in town is Adirondack Life, and I have no particular experience with backcountry camping or all the great wonderful perks of the Adirondack experience, but I could write about something I knew about, and that was history and ethnic history, and that was something I'd done elsewhere in the country for another newspaper, and I thought, let's see what I can turn up here. It can't all be trees and canoes and great camps and (laughs) guideboats and black flies. There's got to be a little more going on, and I found this world of Migratory laborers, peddlers, gypsies, work crews uh, populated by people who were not Anglophones, who came from Canada and from Ireland and from Poland and Italy and Lithuania and Mexico and were working in the tanneries and the mines and the roads and the woods. And it was such a rich story. One one article just tumbled into the next. Um, and after years of mining that vein, I started to look harder at the black experience in the Adirondacks, and that's what interested the woman who approached me to develop an exhibit on the black settlers of Timbuktu, the little settlement that John Brown moved near. She was interested in John Brown, but she said, well, nobody knows about this other story. Why don't we do an exhibit on this? Her name was Martha Swan. She heads up a group called John Brown Lives. And I said, Martha, I don't think there's a there there. I don't think we're going to find a story. Historians have always said this came to nothing. And she said, you give it a try. And here's what we have. We have this glorious exhibit that's still at the John Brown State Historic Site near um, Lake Placid today. And we have this book that I thought was going to be this light little pamphlet that document mm-hmm. so much more activity in these little communities than I'd expected. And this grand political backdrop seeking suffrage rights in an age of voter suppression. So it was a double whammy for me on all fronts. What has been the reaction to the Blackwoods book? Publishers Weekly just gave it a really nice review. I was thrilled by that. I've had nothing but extremely engaged, curious responses from every audience I've addressed since the book came out and before all over the state, but mostly right now in the Adirondack region, but also out to Peterborough, into Connecticut. I'll be talking in Vermont. I've got a talks coming at the New School in New York City. So as far as I can, I can mine for interest, people are responding when they hear about the story. It seems to me like there's a inflection point here where there's an interest that might not have emerged 10 years ago. There's more receptivity to this kind of hidden or lost history that I hadn't expected, and it's incredibly thrilling for me. The big buzz, it seems to me, about 
black organizations these days is with Black Lives Matter. Uh, is that organization or group uh, interested in this book, or maybe, maybe they are, but you just don't know about it? There are plenty of people in the Adirondacks who are committed to the Black Lives Matter movement who are very interested in this story. And there has been a Black Lives Matter installation at the John Brown Farm addressing issues of police brutality and black lives in the last hundred years or more. Um, And that is an expression of the connection between John Brown's interest in racial justice, not just in the anti-slavery movement, but in black rights beyond and before the movement even, and um, what's happening today. So those links are being expressed in a range of ways that I also think is impressive and very interesting and inevitable in this case. This is a story of black voting rights, and it's also a story of environmental distributive justice. So it has... um, it resonates for environmental groups as well because it's about land use mm-hmm. and just land use, making sure everybody has access to the land, which, of course, is a goal of the Adirondack Park and of mm-hmm. the agencies that, that root for the park. So there are ties there. Well, Amy, where did most of these black settlers come from to the North Woods? Well, that's a great question because while most of the land was given to where most black New Yorkers lived, namely metropolitan New York, most of the settlers who come, and as I said, there aren't many, but when you look at places of origin or the place they have in common, it's Troy, New York. And the reason for this is obvious. One is it's closer to the Blackwoods. So if things don't work out in the Adirondacks, you can get back to Troy more easily than you can get back to um, Flushing or or Westchester or Brooklyn. If if and the other reason is that Troy was gifted with an extremely charismatic um, orator and land agent and friend of Garrett Smith, um, Henry Highland Garnett of the Liberty Street Church in Troy, and he preached hard in favor of this migration of black Trojans to. Um, the North Country for the sake of getting out of a racist scene at home and trying something fresh and shooting for a truly equalitarian community. So Troy, for me, is the starring city that that fuels the Grant Woods most exuberantly. Well, Amy Gadeen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Is there anything uh, you'd like to add before we uh, end our conversation? Oh, nothing except I'm delighted you took an interest in my book, and I hope um, everybody who hears this gets a chance to get a hold of it from their local bookstore or order it online from Cornell and enjoys it and lets me know what they think of it. I'd love to know that, too. Give us the the title and, and subtitle if there is one now to close on. You bet. The Black Woods. Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. You can donate to the Historian's Podcast on our GoFundMe page. Find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.